0: Planet Pod: Essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As we record this episode, COP27 has recently come to an end with a deeply disappointing outcome, in which the assembled nations failed to take decisive action on fossil fuels, making it even more likely that oil and gas production will increase, not decrease, in the coming decade. Tackling the global climate crisis means we need to speed up our use of renewables, not just to provide energy security, but if we're ever to stand a chance of reaching net zero. While most people are keen to support renewable energy projects, they're not without controversy. And most controversial of all is nuclear power. Is it clean? Is it safe? Do we need it? These questions dominate the discussion, and today we're going to explore them with my two expert guests who represent both sides of the discussion. Dr. Paul Dorfman is Associate Fellow Science Policy Research Unit at Sussex Business School at the University of Sussex, and he's Chair of the Nuclear Consulting Group. Paul, hello and welcome to Planet Pod. Thank you. My second guest, Jessica Johnson, is Communications and Advocacy Director at Nuclear Europe, the Brussels-based trade association for the nuclear energy industry in Europe. Welcome, Jessica, and thanks so much for being here.
1: Hi, and, and thanks for inviting me.
0: Um. I think we probably ought to set the scene a little bit for our listeners. Here in the UK, we have six nuclear power plants operating, five of which are AGRs, which are advanced gas cooled, um, the old kind, and one a PWR, which is a pressurised water reactor at size well B on the Suffolk coast. We're also in the middle of building a new plant at Hinkley, which is of a different design. Um, Jessica, I wonder if I could ask you, sorry, just going to get you to give us a science lesson here. Could you maybe take a moment or two to explain how the new nuclear reactor will work? And, and actually, what, what does it do? What do the reactors do and how do we generate energy from them?
1: Um, so essentially, nuclear energy uh, is generated from the splitting of ure- uranium atoms within the reactor. Um, and we call this process fission. Um, What happens is during this process, heat is generated, that heat produces steam, and the steam is then used by a turbine generator to generate electricity. Um, In a nutshell, it is a CO2 free technology, and that is one of the big advantages of nuclear energy. The nuclear power plants that are built in Europe, they're located either on the coast or next to a river because they do use water uh, as part of the cooling mechanism. So that water okay.
0: is extracted, it goes into the cooling, and then it's returned. So we've got six of these things with a new one on the way at Hinkley. Um You're based in Brussels, so you're looking at uh, nuclear Europe rather than just UK. W- what's happening in Europe? I mean, are they engaged in a very, are our, our colleagues in mainland Europe engaged in a big nuclear power plant building programme as well?
1: Uh, Yes, I mean, France, for example, France is the country with the largest number of nuclear reactors in uh, in Europe, more than uh, than the UK. Um, So they have, I think it's 57 uh, reactors. And they are now looking uh, to potentially build uh, or they're definitely looking to build a further six EPRs and potentially a further eight, be it a large reactor or or a small reactor. So France definitely has plans in place to extend uh, its nuclear fleet. Um, We've also seen, so Poland has just recently announced uh, the conclusion of its tendering process um, and they are going to be building uh, several new reactors. The Netherlands is looking to to finance the construction of new nuclear power plants. We even have countries such as Estonia, um, which are potentially considering building what is known as a small modular reactor. So they currently don't have nuclear power, but that's something that they're envisaging. So over the last year. Or maybe even two years, we've seen a significant change in several member states in their attitude towards nuclear, and many of them are are, are considering new construction projects.
0: Mm. And the EPR you mentioned—that's the one that they're building here in the UK in at Hinkley—is that right? Indeed,
1: yes, and it's also okay. the one for Sizewell C.
0: Ah, okay. So, Paul, we've. We've not got very many. We're lagging behind Europe. Is this typical Brits dragging our feet or do we know something they don't? Or why is it you think we're only building one with another one on the way where we've got lots happening in France, where where you're based, I believe?
2: Well, the UK is a a bit of an outlier. Um, Last year, solar and wind made up three quarters of all new electricity generation capacity installed worldwide. And with other renewables... Uh, that's the total figure was eighty four percent with nuclear nowhere. So there's this sort of you know there's this kind of discussion that nuclear can do it or nuclear there's a new sort of push for nuclear, but the reality is is very much very much otherwise. A UK government investment minister notes that North Sea wind power would be more valuable to the UK than oil and gas industry. So there's no one really left to dispute the fact. That net zero heavy lifting will be done by renewables.
0: Eighty four percent. That's that's an extraordinary figure. I mean, that's mm. fantastic. Cause for yeah. celebration.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, a, a very recent Oxford University and UCL research both say uh, utility scale renewable systems are comfortably, quote, comfortably the cheapest and most effective form of electricity production and CO two mitigation. With UCL, you know, University College London research stating that, quote, the current favourable UK government policy towards new nuclear is becoming increasingly difficult to justify.
0: Okay, so it sounds as if um, we know we need other renewables. We know we need renewables that are non-COT producing. Um, So if we've got a lot coming from solar and wind, why would we invest so much money at a time of kind of economic pressure and crisis in a nuclear power plant? Because Hinkley... I think I'm right in saying, it's not just behind schedule, but is over budget. Is that right, Jessica? Um, I mean, compared to the other projects,
1: uh, not as much. I think uh, Hinkley Point is relatively on schedule. I think we also need to take into account that there was the COVID pandemic, which, uh, which had a bit of an impact on that. But yeah, I mean, some of the other projects, admittedly in Finland, uh, yes, they were over budget
0: and uh, delayed. Okay, so Hinckley is not over budget. Hinkley's carrying on coming on on budget at the moment, is it?
1: I think it's it may be slightly over budget, but not to the scales of which we've seen for the for the finished mm. project.
0: Okay, but but I mean I mean yeah, obviously I'm not an engineer either. Um, so, but just looking at it, I'm just thinking about the relative speed of putting up a wind farm, for example, or building a solar park, as opposed to the speed of building a power station, a, a nuclear power station. And presumably the relative cost. Am I right in thinking, Paul, that it's not just quicker but cheaper to 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 invest in offshore wind, onshore wind, which would be great, and you have a lot of that in Europe, and we're not so good at it here in the UK, um, or solar, than to to invest in, in those much more, you know, slower to come to on stream power stations such as, such as nuclear.
2: Well, uh, U.S. government Department Bay's uh, Business uh, Environment and Industry uh, Department state that that nuclear costs always and timelines always ramp and always delay. Uh, you know, in their statement to Parliament, uh, they said that nuclear costs ramp by twenty to a hundred percent, and the time. When you
0: say ramp, you mean increase generally. Increase generally. Yeah. Okay. And
2: increased generally in terms of the timelines for construction. This is U.S. government, Department of Parliament, 13 to 17 years. Now that takes a potential new uh, nuclear station, at size will see to what, 2036, 2040 uh, for first generation, which is obviously uh, far too late uh, for the energy and climate crisis. And things are no better at Tinkley Point C. EDF are working on a contingency uh, change to their contract so as not to incur uh, overtime and overcost uh, penalties. So yes, um, th- the main point about nuclear is this: it's not only uh, hugely expensive. I think uh, Lazard, sort of world-class, you know, advice uh, you know, to to utilities, governments, and corporations. I think the current Levelized cost for nuclear is about $151 per megawatt hour, with the current cost for renewables at $41 per megawatt hour. So, the debate, I mean, the realistic debate, aside from all of the nuclear flam, is over. Uh, Nuclear is very late, uh, far too slow to help us, and far too costly.
1: I think there is one point that I would like to raise here. I mean, of course, yes, indeed, as I said, we openly admit that some of the projects in Europe have overrun um, in terms of time and in terms of delays. But if you look at other parts of the world, for example, China, this isn't actually the case. So, in, the, in, in For the EPRs built in China, they were built within uh, budget and on time. So it's not, you cannot generalise to say all projects have been in that situation, because it's not the case. It is true that there are lessons that the industry needs to learn from those projects. Um, But there's also external factors involved as well. Um, The industry For example, in the UK, it's looking to implement the lessons learned from Hinkley Point C into the Size Well C project. So it's really looking to do that. But at the same time, I think what is important is we need to make sure that uh, we've got the supply chains in place as well. So we need the governments to support in in ensuring that the supply chains are there and that we've got the workforce. Um, When they were building in the late 70s and 80s, one reactor was built after another. And so they were built on time and within budget quite easily because you had that serial effect and you had that support from the government. Um, And so that's that's very, uh, very important. Um, But I also want to bring to attention, I mean, I know, Paul, you have raised some figures from the Lazard study. I think we also need to take into account the the figures from the International Energy Agency, um, which are quite different to what Lazard concludes. And in actual fact, um, for the International Energy Agency, the cheapest form of electricity production is the one which is going to come from the lifetime extension of the existing nuclear fleet. So Extending the, new, the existing fleet by 20 years would mean uh, a cost of 25 euros per megawatt hour, so significantly lower. For nuclear new builds, they estimate 73 euros uh, per megawatt hour. Um, so the figures are really, they are different in terms of the International Energy Agency's figures. And it's always good to bear in mind that different reports have uh, different figures in them.
2: Well, let's take on the International Energy Agency. They've just published the World Energy Outlook 2022, concluding, quote, renewables are the most important way to reduce CO2 emissions in the, uh, in the electricity sector. Uh, in terms of, of the EPR, the, the, the ongoing saga of the EPR, hugely over cost hugely over time, everywhere that it's been built, in Taishan, no, yes, also in Taishan, in Olcunyoto, in Flamonville, and in Taishan, recently shut down for nearly a year uh, with safety issues, and only just sort of, you know, beginning to sort of charge up again. Now, the problem with this CPR, uh, this sort of so-called Generation 3 reactor, is that It's too complex to build, which is actually quite a good thing to a certain extent. Basically, what the the industry tried to do is to say, well, look, we've got lots of problems in case there's an accident. So let's try and construct something that is less amenable to accidents, which is why in China, the kinds of stuff that's being thrown up in China, uh, they wouldn't pass UK or OECD uh, 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 regulation. They're sort of earlier versions which kind of just get thrown up. Now, in terms of of the EPR, let's talk about the EPR in the UK. Well, the EPR one in the UK is sort of you know chuntering on in terms of Hinkley. It's too late to stop, you know, hugely costly and already overcosting and over time. Now, Sizewell C, there's supposed to be yet another EPR one built in Sizewell C, but EDF EDF France has looked at this and said. Oh, God, no, please, not the EPR-1. They planned for the so-called EPR-2 in France, which is essentially a slimmed-down version of the EPR-1, which mu- with much less defense and depth. In other words, it is more unsafe. So the question is, basically, if EDF France, and it's actually France, because the fact is, of course, is that EDF are essentially bankrupt and therefore have to be fully nationalized uh, by France. If they themselves are saying the only EPR that we're going to build is the EPR 2, why on earth is poor old UK sort of chuntering on with trying to build another EPR 1 at size Sizewell?
0: But EDF are responsible for building at one aren't they? The contract is with EDF. So if they want to build do we as this, do we as, as citizens have any say in whether they build the one or the two
2: yeah okay but is it do as i do or do as i say oh, i mean edf okay. are going to you know edf are, are struggling to survive now there's a mess across the channel more than half of edf france's reactors are now offline with safety problems or aging maintenance okay they're essentially bankrupt 45 billion euros in debt facing a further Twenty-nine billion billion euros lost this year, with exponential radioactive waste and decommissioning costs, and with a potential fifty to maybe a hundred billion euros for their mandatory grand carrenage, their mandatory sort of reactor safety upgrade. Now they're in deep doo doo.
0: Is that a technical financial term? Therefore, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I, I'm really. I'm struggling here slightly because because you've both given very different figures, but my understanding is that when we account for I mean, you know, varying between your $157 and your 84 euros or whatever it was, um, Jessica, I can't remember, forgive me, I can't remember the exact number. Um, When we bandy these figures about, these figures themselves are not actually... The real costs, are they? Because this is the cost of the generation when the plant is up and running. It doesn't include the build cost. Is that right? We don't cost in the capital cost of building these very expensive power plants when we then allocate a, uh, an electricity, a cost for producing the energy and the electricity in the first place. So we're actually not accounting for that initial build. Is that right? Have I got that wrong? It takes into account all the costs. I mean, in the case of nuclear, for example, the operation and
1: maintenance costs are very, very low. What is expensive on nuclear is the building of it. Um, But the one point that I need to make here as well, I mean, because obviously we're talking about the time it takes, etc. I think something to bear in mind is the new nuclear power plants built today will still be in operation in 80, potentially 100 years time. So, yes, it may take longer to build them compared to renewables, although I do understand that in the case of, for example, offshore wind, they're taking up to 10 years to be built. It does take slightly longer, but it's going to be and there for a lot longer.
0: Significantly cheaper, significantly cheaper to build and to maintain. And I mean, the large scale cost of solar, according to the levelised energy cost of energy twenty twenty, is twenty seven pounds for per megawatt hour, as opposed to one hundred and twenty one for nuclear. So, you know, I know solar big solar parks are not necessarily um, appealing. They're also the the temporary nature of solar means that you, you know, should you need to move them because your land needs to change, you can do. You can't just pick up a nuclear power plant and put it somewhere else, can you? I mean, you can dismantle a solar park and put the solar up somewhere else. But what you have to take into
1: account here is you're not adding the grid costs. Renewables come with a lot of grid connection costs. So these figures are just for the construction and the operation. They don't include the grid connections. And that's where the cost can be quite high, higher for renewables because they require more grid connections compared to nuclear. You have one nuclear power plant that generates a massive amount of electricity. For wind, solar, you have all the connections that you need. Um, And the second point is, and this is the issue, so we're not saying, and let me be very clear on this, we're not saying it's only nuclear. What we're saying is we need an energy mix that is composed of all low carbon technologies. So that means nuclear and renewables. Why? Because at the end of the day, wind and solar depend on wind and solar. So if there is no wind or there is no sun, what do you do? Do we assume oh, okay. everybody's going to say, well, it's the this question
0: This is the base load question, isn't it? This
1: yeah, is what everybody well, says. It's, it's not just the base load, it's that question of okay, so there are points at which they're not going to be producing energy. Today there is no technology to deal with that um in terms of battery storage. So we do still need that other technology available. And that is where nuclear comes in. Nuclear is low carbon. So let's have that energy mix that's composed of wind, solar and nuclear. Plus also, I think there's this, what's, what we're forgetting here is what the energy needs are going to be in the future. The reality is, We all need access to electricity, but there's also other energy sources that need to be rapidly decarbonized. And for example, we're looking at hydrogen as a solution for that. The amount of hydrogen that is going to need to be produced is absolutely massive. So we are going to have to make sure that there is enough low carbon electricity made available to generate that hydrogen, because if we're producing hydrogen from gas, that doesn't achieve the decarbonisation targets. Well, no, and I don't think anyone's suggesting we produce hydrogen from gas. No, but this this is why I'm saying that in order to produce, for example, hydrogen, you use the low carbon electricity. And that means we're going to need massive amounts of electricity to produce that hydrogen. Hence why we're saying renewables cannot do it alone. You need to have a grid that's composed of all low carbon technologies.
0: Paul, cool. renewables can't do it alone.
2: Okay, so the idea that renewables are too variable to hack it, McKinsey & Co., uh, which is the leading international consultants to governments, corporations, in and institutions, have just said renewables, quote, are on track to become the new baseload electricity supply for global energy markets. And the reality is it's entirely possible to sustain a, a reliable electricity system based on renewable energy. And it's not just nuclear is too slow and expensive. It's far too unflexible to ramp up and down with the swings of demand. The last everyone understands, okay, the renewable evolution is here. There is no question about it. Nu- even nuclear advocates say that this is that renewables will do the heavy lifting. There's no competition. This is what's going on the problem with renewables it's the, uh, with a nuclear it's the very last thing that you want to back up the variability of, uh, of uh, wind and solar and it, you know the variability of wind and solar technologies can be more easily integrated into evolving flexible energy grids and the point about nuclear is this when there's uh, renewable variability okay you can't just power up and power down nuclear one thing that nuclear doesn't do is, is, is load follow very well. It, they they can't are, switch it on and off. They, they start and then they run. So the very last thing that you want for the renewable evolution is nuclear. It's, a, it's, it's basically a, uh, a, a simple waste of time. And when one thinks about energy, you have to think about energy in the round. You're not simply talking about renewables in terms of cost time and and doability its renewable expansion in all sectors energy efficiency and management rapidly advancing storage grid modernization interconnection all of this together that is what will power the renewable evolution with nuclear largely a very marginal a very marginal, uh, a very marginal uh, distraction
0: thank you paul that was really helpful and clearly even once they're operating, they're, they, they're representing good value, especially if you keep them operating for much longer. And I think it's fair to say that that even the Green Party in the UK has said that it's in favour of extending the life of the current nuclear stations we've got. But but if if they are as expensive to build and construct as they are, and you can't—I mean, I'm sure you would agree that they are very expensive to build. You know, once they're operational for 100 years, you get lighter. Why why is it? Do you think that the UK government is so keen on doing this? when we as a country don't actually have the money to do it. And we're relying on, we're relying on EDF and now a wholly state-owned French actor to, to build our reactor for us. So we're not building our own. We're actually getting it built by our, by our neighbours across the channel. What do you think is driving the UK demand for nuclear energy?
1: I mean, I imagine it's pretty similar to the situation in, uh, in Finland, actually, uh, and in other countries in Europe. I mean, we have multiple challenges that we need to deal with. We need to decarbonize our economies and we need to decarbonize them fast. We've literally got less than 30 years to reach that net zero 2050 target. But at the same time, we need to also make sure that we have got security of supply and access to affordable energy. Um, So if you look at the case of Finland, uh, the Finnish Green Party is a very interesting one. They used to be anti-nuclear. Uh, then gradually they said, OK, actually, we admit we do we do need to keep the existing nuclear for as long as possible, but we don't support new build. In their manifesto in June, they actually said, actually, we do support new nuclear. I mean, they recognise that nuclear power has a role to play because we seem to be talking it's either nuclear or renewables. We seem to be forgetting what our goal is here. Our goal is to decarbonize, And to do that, we need to make sure that we're using all technologies. And I guess it's a similar situation in the UK. It's what we're seeing in other countries as well. On top of this. Decarbonization target, we have the security of supply issue. Um, and there I'd like to use the example of Germany. I mean, Germany, the energy winder has been promoted as this fantastic tool that is going to solve everything and it's going to have all these renewables. The reality is um, they haven't actually managed to decarbonize their grid because the renewables have been replacing the nucleus. The gas has always been there. And even worse than that, now they I mean they are shutting down their remaining reactors. They're proposing to keep two of them on standby. Um, which suggests that you can actually start a power plant up and shut it down as needed, if Germany is considering that as an option. Um, but instead of keeping as much of their fleet online as possible, they're reopening their coal-fired power coal units. So if mm, renewables yeah. are able to provide all the solutions that some people suggest, why is Germany having to reopen its coal-fired power plants? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's against all that backdrop that you're seeing the same decisions being taken in the UK. Okay.
0: Paula, let you come back quickly because I wanted to ask you another question.
2: At the moment, here and now, half of France's reactors are offline. One half of all French nuclear is offline with uh, safety problems. Now, this means that France, nuclear power excellence, is now is an, Im- an importer of, of, of energy and starting up its coal plants. Now, in terms of, of the energy vendor, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Nobody expected the war, but the energy vendor is going very well indeed in terms of, of uh, lowering coal, lowering CO two, and in, and increasing uh, uh, and increasing renewables. Now the point behind all of this is, is the point that Jessica discussed earlier, is one largely about climate. You know, the main issue here is climate. How can we survive? You know, what can we do? How can we decarbonize? You know, now the point about climate is this nuclear needs vast amounts of water to cool to run to cool. Now, whether that's inland or whether that's coastal. Now, what we've seen last year, uh, just this year, is French reactors shutting down because of the cooling water issue, because they're based uh, in rivers that are becoming too hot. Now, what we're also seeing is coasts rising. And we know that well, we think that sea level rise will be stepwise, but the problem is actually more storm surge, when basically uh, the sea, basically under certain atmospheric conditions, just ups and runs in land. Now, the majority worldwide of reactors worldwide are based on, on 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 the coast, and are hugely vulnerable, and will be vulnerable in the next decade or two, maybe sooner, to flooding. Now, I've seen models associated with size world C, and there seems no doubt that within 20 years, at the time that size world C may be, may generate, it will be once per year surrounded by, by, by flood water. So this notion that nuclear is going to come and save us from the climate is profoundly problematic. And we're not simply talking about the reactors. We're also talking about the vast waste stores and spent fuel waste stores associated with each station. Which, by the way, are not really included in this business about nuclear is low carbon. Nuclear produces carbon to a very large degree. It produces carbon for uranium mining, for transport, for uh, processing, for reprocessing, for operation, and most importantly, for waste. And as at present... We have no solution for waste uh, storage, waste management. There's a large hole that's been dug in Finland. But um, everybody used to talk about the WIP uh, facility in 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 America where transuranics, plutonium, were were interred uh, saying, yes, look, we can bury this stuff. Unfortunately, a few years ago, there was a god-awful accident there. Now, we have to isolate these things for millennia uh, the problem is we have enough of this stuff to worry about. Why produce more, especially when we don't really know how to get rid of it? it,
0: it, it the answer of burying it in the ground. I mean, this stuff has a toxic half-life of thousands of years and we have no idea how much it's going to cost for us to to, to store it. We haven't really got a solution for where we're going to put that and how we're going to keep our future generations safe from that, or have we?
1: I mean, yes, what we need to put into perspective here, really, I think, is, is also the volumes of waste that are being generated. Um, the volume of high-level waste is, is extremely small. Um, I think people have in their minds this kind of massive amount. Uh, that's not the case. I mean, when you look at the figures that come from the uh, from the commission, um, the in terms of the distribution of radioactive waste per category uh, per, per category by volume, uh, the figure for high level waste is zero point two percent.
0: Oh yeah, I know. I agree. I would so absolutely waste. agree. So it's with actually you a very
1: very low volume. So I agree with you. It's You're tiny. right.
0: Yeah, it's you tiny. don't need. Mean- Bit to kill people. I mean it yeah. is incredibly toxic.
1: No. Yeah, but it's it? like other Yeah, but it's like other toxic and hazardous waste. You need to make sure that it is clearly managed. Let's be clear all industries generate toxic and hazardous waste including solar panels. So we're not the only the only one to generate it. There's a lot of focus on radioactive waste in Europe I think due to the fact that we keep our waste in Europe. We don't export it to other countries. I think that's a big problem in Europe at the moment is a lot of the waste that we generate is exported to other parts of the world. In the case of the nuclear sector uh, the very vast majority is kept here and it is handled here in Europe, which means that we are making sure there's full transparency on where it's stored, what the volumes are, etc. Um, as you say, yes, it is radioactive waste. It remains radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years, but it does eventually lose its radioactivity, unlike toxic waste. Although, of course, that does take, as I said, hundreds of thousands of years. So it's on a very, very long time scale. The deep yes. geological repository that was referenced to uh, with regards to Finland. Um, I mean, let's be clear, it's going to be operational in 2025. Uh, and a second point about that project, it's actually being constructed adjacent to what is known as a Natura 2000 site. So it's, it's adjacent to a nature-protected area, which means that it had to undergo an even more robust environmental impact assessment. So mm-hmm. I think these are important points to, to, to take into consideration.
0: They're very powerful arguments, these.
2: The volume doesn't matter. It's the radioactivity that's key here. Now, I was, okay, secretary to the UK government-signed advisory committee on on examining radiation risk from internal emitters. So I ran a Whitehall office for four years looking at internal radiation, radiation epidemiology, radiation biology. Now, the point about radiation, the point about high-level radiation is this. It doesn't matter about the volume, okay? The volume is not important. It's the radioactivity. And I wonder what Jessica has to say about uh, the fact that nuclear is either by the coast or inland, with the inland rivers drying up and the coast set to swamp.
0: And we know that the, the, the most recent nuclear um, disaster at Fukushima was as a direct result of, an, of, a, of a naturally occurring climate activity, which was a tsunami. And, I, you know, dare I say, what about, you know, you talked about Poland and, and Ukraine. I mean, what about the risk of terrorism and threat? I mean, that is pretty, te- pretty frightening in terms of, 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 of a nuclear power station.
2: Now, all of the models strongly suggest that sea levels are rising. All of the models strongly suggest okay, that storm surge will be hugely, hugely important towards our coast. Now, nuclear is sited by the coast. All the models suggest that the rivers are running hot. Now, I'd like to hear what Jessica has to say about nuclear and climate.
1: With regards to what happened at Fukushima, um, a stress stress test was conducted for the European power plants to make sure that they would be able to... Withstand that. So there were lessons learnt from that, and they have been implemented into the industry. Coming back to your point, Paul. I mean, yes, at the moment, the nuclear fleet this summer they did see a reduction in capacity because either there was a there was the river levels were lower than the legislation allowed, or at least went below a level which meant that capacity had to go down, or the temperature of the river level increased. So yes, indeed, it did have a minor impact on nuclear power output during the summer. But one thing that I would like to clarify here, it is technically feasible to upgrade nuclear power plants or when you build a new new nuclear power plant to deal with that issue. I mean, they are building nuclear power plants, for example, in the UAE. The question comes down to the economics. Is the loss in capacity and therefore the economic um, impact sufficient to justify the technical upgrades? that could be implemented. At the moment, for the time being, because the loss in capacity has been minimal over the last few years, the industry doesn't believe that it needs to do anything. But indeed, for the new build projects, these are issues that are being taken into consideration. Work has been conducted in the Nordic regions. They are uh, coastal based nuclear power plants and they are looking into this issue. A study has been conducted and whilst they say for the existing fleet uh, things are okay when they're looking to build new build projects and cl- the effects of climate change become even more severe in the next 50, 60 years, then yes, we should be making sure that the nuclear power plants are resilient to them. So I also would like to remark on the fact that you'd cons- commented that nuclear consumes vast amounts of water for cooling. What actually happens is we withdraw the water for cooling, but most of it is then returned to the river or to the, to the sea. So we need to make a distinction between water withdrawn and returned and water actually can, actually consumed. And finally, you'd made the comment about the French uh, fleet, about them all being taken offline because they were not safe. To be clear, it's not that they were not safe. They detected faults in a vessel. And as is per the nuclear safety perspective, all similar vessels then had to be taken offline to check to see if they had the same faults or not. And that is what is being done. And then some of the ch- um, the checking is unfortunately destructive. So the parts have to be replaced afterwards. Um, but that's the situation with the French fleet. It's not that they all had the problem. It's that okay. all of those are the same model. I think it's
0: absolutely fair to say to you, Jessica, and to, to the nuclear industry that, that that you take security and safety as paramount, and they are definitely the driving forces. Um, I suspect this is an argument that we're not, a discussion that we're not going to be able to conclude in the sense of, of getting either of you to, to, to shift your position. It's been a fascinating discussion. Paul, we did cut you off. I don't know if you want to come back very quickly and if you have something you wanted to say as a kind of closing remark.
2: The weight of evidence, okay, the weight of research shows that due to the pace, the scale, the economics of the renewable evolution, all nuclear can do is make promises it can't keep. Uh, fissile fuel turns out to be an expensive and marginal distraction, uh, well past its sell-by date.
0: Hmm. It's been fascinating to hear your points of view. Clearly, nuclear is extremely controversial remains extremely controversial. We haven't really had a chance to touch on on some of the issues that I think face some of the the upcoming projects here in the UK, particularly at Sizewell, where there's issues to do with with water scarcity. And, and destruction of habitats. And we certainly haven't talked about some of the downsides of nuclear in terms of the actual constructions of the sites, but it's been fascinating to have to have both of your perspectives and to have such an informed and educated pair of guests on the pod. And I'm very grateful to both of you, to you, Jessica, for joining us from Brussels and to you, Paul, joining us from Paris um, to share your points of view. And, and, and I'm sure we will come back to this, to this conversation as the debate about nuclear continues to rage, somewhat unabated, um, here in the uk as well as elsewhere so thank you for joining us today and thank you for your time jessica and paul
2: thank
0: you thank you and don't go anywhere listeners because as you know um uh, we always close our pod with a quick chat with our executive producer jim on animal vegetable mineral and no doubt he has yet another fascinating fact to share with us today so a thank you to my guests and stay tuned for animal vegetable mineral
3: PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. So Jim,
0: um, we should have had you in the room. You're an engineer. You'd have been able to come back on some of those points, but I've fascinated
3: discussion it was fascinating wasn't it and as ever there's always good there's always two sides of all of these discussions these arguments but um yeah i think you have to weigh up the, the information that's that's provided and look at the evidence look at the facts
0: so what are you going to tell us about well
3: this yeah good question amanda well, i'm going to give you some clues uh you know what i'm going to talk about today uh, the average house is about 90 kilograms of it under the floor in the walls uh you might have a few grams of it behind your sofa Uh, And there's a length of about 1.6, one and a half kilometres in your electric car that you drive around. A jumbo jet's got 1.8 tonnes of it. And the Statue of Liberty has 27 tonnes of it. So what is it?
0: Oh, my goodness. Whatever can that be? Okay, so I'm guessing it's something... Well, it's not, I mean, it's not like a, it's not like your mushrooms. So it's not a naturally, it's not a natural growing thing. <laughs> well, so we're not talking about bits of the wood, are we? No, there?
3: I'm going to put you out of you your misery. I'm going to put you out of your misery. It's copper. Oh, I thought, oh to, copper. T- t- I thought today we were. I more... was going to say
0: lead, but obviously not <clears> Well, no, no, no it's, copper. It's,
3: <clears> it's copper. It's copper. It's <clears> very easy to take for granted. But actually copper is, it plays such a vital you know, part in our lives. And it's, it's reckoned to have more useful properties than any other metal. So it's a, it's a real, it's a wonder metal, really. Um, I mean, it's a fantastic conductor of electricity, as we know, a- and of heat. Um, you know, it's the metal of choice for all electrical wiring, and, or most electrical wiring, uh, certainly in homes and other buildings. You know, plugs, sockets, phones, solar panels, everything, pretty well anything electrical. Um, but it's also. So, have I
0: got it stuffed down the back of my sofa then?
3: Well, come on to that. I'll come on to that. Uh, okay. Well, so, uh, uh, yeah, good question. So it's, it's durable. It's relatively cheap. It can be bashed about. It can be shaped. It can be bent. Uh, it's great for making things like water pipes, which need to get, you know, bent round corners. But a lot of coins were made of copper. So interesting, curious copper conundrum for you. Uh, before 1992, the penny and two pence coins in the UK were made 97% copper. Uh, and their scrap value is now more than their face value. Uh, so if you, would, if you collected up enough, you'd get more by selling it for scrap. So that's why you've got, you may have some behind the sofa. But copper is resistant to corrosion, uh, which means it's great for water pipes and central heating and water systems and so on. Fantastic for plating the hulls of wooden ships in the good old days of sail, uh, so you prevent mm-hmm. those barnacles. Uh, but here's a really cool copper curiosity for you, Amanda. It's naturally antibacterial. Uh, Which is why many door handles and doorknobs and things used to be made from copper, Um, and you can blend it with other uh, other metals, so you can make bronze, which, as you know, I'm sure is ninety percent copper and ten percent tin, and then you can. I do now, and you know you can. (laughs) Well, listener, you learn something new every day. Brass, yeah, you can make brass from copper, so you've got uh, seventy percent copper and thirty percent zinc. So really, you know, it's really versatile.
0: Why does it go green?
3: Why does it go green? Well, it's it, yeah, it's sort of a verdigris. I mean, it doesn't it, it doesn't corrode, but it does react. There is a sort of a, there's a, a a reaction, if you like, to you know. So that it doesn't stay bright. It will it will oxidize effectively. Uh, somebody will probably tell you know call in and say it's not oxidation at all, but it, I mean essentially that. But it's not corrosion as such. It doesn't dissolve okay. But I think I mean, another another copper curiosity is that it can be recycled many times um, without any breakdown in quality. And so. About two thirds of the something like 28 million tonnes of copper that we use every year is actually recycled stuff we've used before. So that's, you know, that's really, really important and particularly important uh, because here is a challenging copper conundrum for you. Uh, We're going to need lots and lots and lots and lots of copper to get to net zero for, you know, things like wind turbines, for the electric vehicles we talked about, for solar panels, for all the power lines and all, you know, loads and loads of other electrical bits and bobs. So the demand for copper is likely to more than double by 2035 uh, to around 53 million tonnes and go on increasing out to 2050. And we're going to need more copper over the next 28 years than than, than all the copper that's been used worldwide since 1900. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's a massive sort of massive ask. A lot of it's going to be recycled. We've just talked about that. But an awful lot is going to need to be mined to, to, to meet the growing demand. Uh, um, you know, we may even see copper wars breaking out uh you know as we look for new deposits and and new sources of copper and it's and it's no coincidence that that ukraine is is one of the most mineral rich countries in in europe so you know Mm. that's you know that's an one of the underlying issues i think for for places like ukraine so you know mining of course has got a host of environmental Mm. challenges associated with as we know uh uh, and social issues and other issues so Copper, Amanda, is a special uh, special metal. Uh, so if you've got any behind your sofa, it's probably a good idea, as long as it's pre pre, <laughs> as long as it's pre nineteen ninety two. You know, but it's it's going to be really important for a net fu- net zero future. But but mm. uh, according to some researcher, there's no copper bottomed guarantee uh, oh. that supply is going to match demand. So we've just got to make sure that we um, you know treat it as a as a precious metal. Yeah,
0: use it wisely. Use it wisely. Yeah, absolutely. And doesn't it? You know, that's just another one of those. It's a climate conundrum, really, isn't it? Not just yeah. a copper conundrum. Yeah. So much of what we need for our transition and our low energy and our low carbon future comes with quite a big question mark over it, you know? Difficult to get hold of. It's like the batteries in my electric car with the lithium, it's all of this. It's a yep. bit like nuclear, we've just been talking about. Yep. You know, there's no simple, safe, carbon free, you know, environment. No. Not harming the environment, free activities there
3: exactly, and I suppose you know the lesson is that you know we, we must treat every single natural resource as precious, you know, and not not mm. just think of it as as infinite, and that we can just keep going mining copper out the out the ground, or or you know, or uh, you know, abusing the you know the, the resources that the earth providing for us you know we should be good stewards of the environment
0: We must care for our precious planet and what a great note to end on thank you planet pod listeners for being with us and for sticking with a long podcast discussing some very difficult and tricky but fascinating um, information and ideas Um, and we look forward to to being with you again soon so thanks for listening and goodbye you've been listening to planet pod we'd love to hear from you so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media